0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Brawn Body Podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, my name is Dan and I'm the founder of Brawn Body and I host this podcast. We release a new episode every week. And this week we're excited to be bringing you a great episode all about core training. So everything you've ever wanted to know about your abs, how to train them, how to pair exercises together for optimal results, which exercises to do versus not to do, the relevant anatomy of your abs, so all about those muscles. Lots of awesome, exciting information. And to help me do it, I'm excited to welcome Eric Kaplan to the show. So a little bit about Eric. Eric is a 2017 graduate of Westchester University's Exercise Science Program, and he's currently my classmate at Lebanon Valley College where we're both studying to be doctors of physical therapy. Eric is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist from the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Currently, Eric trains people on his own, uh, virtually from home because of the whole COVID thing. So with that, please join me in welcoming Eric to the show. And now we're gonna dive into the anatomy of the core. So, do you that want to start? like a good plan. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Would you like to start yeah. us off here? Yeah, for sure. So, I think that first off, I'll I'll
1: start by saying that I think um, when it comes to the core, there's a kind of a definition problem, um, and I think that generally speaking, um, there are a lot of fitness communities out there that kind of look at the core as the rectus abdominis, that six pack muscle. So, although that is kind of where we start. That's where we start the conversation about a core, about the core. Um, you know, there's a lot more than that. You also have the internal obliques, the external obliques, which kind of create that, um, kind of internal corset of the abdominal cavity. Uh um, that creates side flexion rotation anti-rotation bracing all that good stuff which i'm sure we'll go into in, in a lot more detail um and then you get into kind of the deeper core muscles like the transverse abdominis, which you hear about all the time is being that bracing muscle that creates a powerful braking mechanism that allows you to produce movements outside of the core um, more effectively and efficiently um so you know when you hear the when you hear um, you know, a therapist or, or a strength coach say, take a punch. Um, so you kind of think about what it would feel like to brace yourself for a punch, that's that transverse subdominus that's um, contracting to create that um, to create that sensation. You also have the muscles that you don't really think about quite as much, um, like the erector spinae, which is comprised of the iliocostalis, the longissimus and the spinalis, these long muscles that run down um, the vertical axis of the spine connecting down to the iliac crest, which is those, um, those hip structures that you can kind of feel if you palpate to the sides um, of your hips, they're kind of sticking out through the skin. Um, And they also run, you know, all the way up to the skull as well. So, you know, the the core is a little bit more complex than I think people um, expect it to be. And when you look at the anatomy, there's a lot more going on there than just, again, that six pack muscle, the rectus abdominis. Um, It's a really a multifunctional, uh, multidimensional, you know, piece of anatomy or, or, you know, set of anatomy, I guess I should say, that has a lot of different functions, everything from creating movement, um, to respiratory function, to gastric function, to cardiovascular function. So there's really
0: a lot going on there. Right, definitely. And just kind of looking at some of what you um, just delve into there. (coughs) So... you you know, you really hit deep on the different obliques, the transversus and the erector spinae there. And the transversus especially, that's the muscle we're constantly cueing people about in exercises, in lifting. So, you know, when we want someone to do a squat, for example, if they're gonna do a heavy barbell squat, we wanna make sure they have a tight core to protect their back. So that's the muscle we're really going after with that. Um, And oddly enough, when we think about training, when we think about athletics, most of what we're after is in the transversus, the obliques, and the back. We don't think of the rectus as much in sports. So whether it's football, lacrosse, soccer, we don't see as much of a need to have a strong trunk flexor whereas we do need the rotation the anti-rotation the ability to brace and connect movement in the lower body to movement in the upper body so to speak some kind of continuous muscular system
1: Hmm. yeah i agree and you know i think that there is a role for the rectus abdominis for sure i think that it just tends to be that you know that muscle that's activated predominantly in something like a sit-up or a crunch um, and it's like one of the first exercises you learn so of course it's kind of the muscle you think about the most without a deep anatomical knowledge um, but yeah I mean I think it has a role when you when it comes down to it it does you know comprise that whole anterior compartment of the ab- abdomen so I mean it definitely has a role in core stability but you're right you know there is a lot more going on here that's creating movement we don't typically move in a single plane at a time through our daily lives you know we're moving in multiple planes and we need the core to be active in a lot of different ways to serve
0: us you know throughout our days right especially like, like you said you know doing
1: doing uh you know athletic movements um like jumping twisting Lifting, you know, pulling things like that,
0: right? And that's something I know we're going to dive into a little bit more later is multi directional core work. I know that's kind of your specialty, really, is breaking out of the sagittal plane for exercises. So, for people who don't know the anatomical planes, the sagittal plane is any kind of forward and backwards type of movement, so something like a bicep curl. The transverse plane is anything side to side, so like a torso twist or rotation. And the frontal plane is anything, think of like a line going through the middle of your body, dividing it into a front and a back. This would be that plane. So anything like a shoulder lateral raise, anything to the side. So we're going to go into how to work your core in all those planes and more at the same time. So... Yeah, we'll be talking about that training a little bit more later. Uh, There's also a couple other smaller muscles I wanna bring up real quick. So first is the quadratus lumborum or the QL, and this is one most people probably haven't heard of before, but Gray Cook and Stuart McGill, who are two huge names in the realm of back pain and training. Um, they really found a lot of clinical significance to the QL, which connects your iliac crest, so Eric mentioned that earlier, to your upper four lumbar vertebra. And this little guy does a little bit of everything. Um, Side bending, pelvic rotation, back extension, anterior pelvic tilting, it stabilizes the pelvis and the lumbar spine in all planes. And this is a muscle that clinically, I think we've seen a lot of people with tightness in these muscles from sitting down so much, especially with poor posture.
1: Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and again, not only does it produce movement, it's also part of that bracing mechanism in the posterior wall of the ab- abdominal cavity. So um, it's, again, a multifunctional core muscle that produces pressure within the abdomen so that you can produce fluid movements. Um, and and it also does produce that hip hiking mechanism and contributes to side bedding and twisting and all that good stuff as well.
0: Right. And... Even though we've talked about what we would consider the musculature of the core, there's some things that we wouldn't consider that would contribute to core stability or core function that do. So when we talk about like a deadlift, for example, we always have a client or patient tighten their lats before they lift the bar because those lats run from the hip to the arm and they kind of connect everything together. So even just tightening your lats can help you uh, hold your core steady and stable and maintain a proper deadlift in this case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, and I think, you know, most people would agree that really the core, is you know pointing towards the musculature that adheres to the spine and keeps the spine stable so we're not just talking you know about the inferior musculature or even the muscular at the midsection like you said we're also talking about the latissimus dorsi which you can imagine it's, it's a massive muscle um it's not just a, a shoulder extensor an internal rotator all that good stuff an adductor it's also a muscle that you know is playing a huge role embracing the entire upper part of the body for big lifts like deadlifts and squats and good stuff all that good stuff so you know it's it's again, helping to produce a really stable spine due to its articulation
0: um, down the you know cervical and thoracic spine, or thoracic spine, I should say. Right. And right. you brought up a great point there with how it includes everything that connects to the spine. So we often don't think of other muscles that are related to the axial skeleton, like the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, too, but yep. they kind of form the roof and the floor of the abdominal cavity. I know we've discussed this quite a bit before. Um, you know, Before you lift, say you're going to do your one rep max squat. Before you lift, you take that nice deep breath in, and that contracts your diaphragm. So your diaphragm pulls down. Think of where your diaphragm yep. is around your stomach. So that's going to shrink the volume in your abdominal cavity. And we know that... True slower or a smaller volume will be, uh, matched by increased pressure. So it'll help keep the back stable. And I think that's something I know I've actually struggled with that in the past. Um, I don't know about you, but for a while I've struggled to activate the diaphragm and the pelvic floor effectively during exercises sometimes. But once I learned how to do it, it made a huge difference, uh, not just in my strength, but in my mobility, too, because I had more stability where I needed it.
1: So I, I think that Mary Masary's model, um, called the soda can model, is a really good way to kind of describe the interplay between the thoracic and abdominal cavities um, as kind of like a, a, as a pressure system, so to speak. So um, basically, the way she breaks it down is you're going to pan the soda... And, you know, when it's full and when the tab is closed, you have a pressure filled system and that pressure is kind of what maintains the integrity of the can. So as soon as you open that, that can of soda, all of a sudden the pressure flows out and you don't have a stable structure anymore. You could crush it very easily. So basically what she's saying is you can take that soda can model and apply it to the human body where the tab, where the soda can opens, is kind of like the vocal folds where your mouth would open. And then you have the thoracic cavity on the top, separated in the middle with the diaphragm, and at the bottom is the abdominal cavity. So you know structurally, a soda can, just the you know the, the aluminum in and of itself is not that strong. It's actually the pressure that gives the can integrity and gives the can strength. So that's kind of like the pressure that we're able to produce in our bodies to create you know a, a rigid structural um, you know series of segments, so to speak. So. Um, know basically what she's saying is that you know it's more than just a musculoskeletal system when we talk about the core it's also you know all of the contents of those cavities and the contents of those systems so you know you could have something and, and you know they're also very interrelated so you could have something like a respiratory issue a dysfunctional respiratory system where some of the respiratory muscles like the intercostals for example um, that kind of line the rib cage if those are dysfunctional you can see some you know regional dysfunction down in the abdomen just because you have this kind of flawed pressure system so you A know, really good example um, of this and to kind of illustrate it into something more familiar is, say, like a pregnant woman who has a human growing inside of her, putting a lot of pressure on the abdominal cavity, obviously, um, and kind of stretching the pelvic floor muscles into a suboptimal position so they're not contracting and firing properly and then when a pregnant woman you know coughs sneezes a function of the respiratory system all of a sudden you have a lot of times urinary incontinence because the pelvic floor isn't functioning properly and that function that urinary function you know isn't is not operating properly either so you can kind of see the interplay between these systems And we can actually train out of this, you know, it's, it's great to know all this information, but what's really important is what can we do about it? Can we strengthen these muscles that become dysfunctional to create, you know, a better pressure gradient within the body?
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a great analogy to help understand it and drive it home. But ultimately, like you said, this is our pressure system. So dysfunction here impacts everything else like I've even got a study I found this morning and linked it in here about how core stability is needed for optimal rotator cuff strength and if you're a PT you need to make sure that your patients are working their core while doing rotator cuff work which it's just crazy to see all the connections here
1: Yeah. It's, it's that idea of regional interdependence. You know, it's like if you see dysfunction, you know, in the shoulder, there's a good chance it does. It it can, but there's a good chance that that dysfunction doesn't originate in the shoulder and you should probably start looking elsewhere before you start, you know, really hammering into the shoulder. So there's that, there's that idea that, um, you know, proximal strength and proximal tension equals distal strength and and distal movement and ability. So, if you can create that proximal strength in the torso and in the core, there's a good chance you're gonna have more functionality and more mobility in the distal structures, you know, like when you're lifting weights. So, it's a really important idea when it comes to strength training.
0: Right, exactly. All right, so, I think we've really, dug deep on the anatomy of the core here we've used names of muscles most people haven't ever heard of before um so we're really getting in there good but going after training now so all right we know what the core is we know what makes it up but how are we going to strengthen it and i threw one bullet in here that i get asked a lot and uh, i know it was a big myth or debate about this but do I have to train my core directly? So if yeah. you squat heavy, deadlift heavy, bench press, whatever, is that enough? Or should I, you know, train the core on its own? And right. I know I have opinions about that, but I'm curious to hear what yours are before we get into World War Three here. Yeah, well,
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's still a big question. I don't know if there is... You know, a perfect answer to the question, but um, I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that it certainly doesn't hurt to train the core directly, um, but that's not to say that doing something like a heavy loaded front squat or a deadlift or a, or a back squat, barbell back squat, you know, is not training the core. You know, I, I think that they're all useful in their own ways, but I also don't think it makes sense to be narrow-sighted in your approach to training so you know i think you have to ask yourself when you are training core directly like what is the carryover effect you know so just because you can use strength to create stiffness and rigidity during a dynamic movement doesn't mean that you'll be able to employ that strength against a dynamic movement if that makes sense so you know if just because i can do a thousand Russian twists or just because I can do, you know, a hundred leg raises in a row. Does that mean that I can transfer that strength adequately to a deadlift or to a squat? You know, that's kind of up in the air, but I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there are some core exercises that are really beneficial to supplementing those movements or or complementing those movements probably more um, specifically. So Um, Again, I I don't know if there's a perfect answer, but I think for me, I don't think it makes sense – to short yourself on the direct core training. I think that it does have an application. If anything, it at least contributes to the motor learning process. So you can feel what those deep core muscles feel like. And even the superficial core muscles, you know, some people, again, are really working on that six pack, but they're not working on rotation. So maybe they don't know what it feels like to contract the obliques adequately. So, you know, I think that having a dynamic approach to core training is really important. Um, but, just having a plan is probably the most important thing. You know, what is your intention? What are you trying to do by training the core? Are you trying to build a six pack? If you are, then, you know, go ahead and do a thousand crunches, that's, that's your prerogative. But, um, you know, I, I think that having a clear understanding of what the core is and, you know, how it can contribute to uh, the movement
0: process is, is pretty important. Right. I have to agree with you. And you bring up a great point as far as uh, demand specificity there with what is your goal? So if your goal is to build a insane one rep max deadlift and you're a specialist in the deadlift, then odds are your core training is going to look a lot differently than someone who is a football linebacker or a soccer player and you know there's even going to be gender differences here in how we train the core Um, for the most part the programming is the same between men and women but for a female athlete I might add in more direct core training because of the need for proximal stabilization as we touched on before uh, for distal mobility so you know, we know female athletes, especially soccer players, are more prone for ACL-type injuries and that sort of thing. So I'm going to try and do everything I can as a therapist or a trainer to prevent that. So if it includes yep. an extra set of core, then, yeah, we're going to throw that in there. Um, yeah. But, no, I I like that. There's no one-size-fits-all approach for this. There's Exactly, yeah. I forget what his name was. There was a bodybuilder a few years back who was winning competitions. And he said he never trained his core directly. He said he just always tensed as hard as he could on things like bench press and stuff. Um, yeah. But.
1: yeah, and there's, there's objective data to, uh, or objective information to suggest that that works perfectly well for that guy, you know? Right. So, so I think that that's, that's a really good example, but at the same time, you know, say you have an overhead athlete that's primarily engaged in overhead activity, maybe, you know, only doing front squats to train this person's core isn't an awesome idea. Maybe we have to be more dynamic and starting incorporating the upper quarter a little bit more, you know, for it to make sense to that athlete. It's sports specific training. It's human specific training. You know, these things can be situational and, um, you know, they're going to have context. So I think you need to be mindful
0: of that. Right. And Uh, like you said before, like some people might do a thousand sit-ups, but the sit up might not even be the most effective exercise for building that six pack. So there's sure. an article, I, another one I found this morning, uh, I just got into the reading today, I guess. And, um, they were saying that EMG activity showed more core activation throughout the entire core system in exercises like a Swiss ball pike or a decline sure. push-up than your traditional bent knee sit up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that people get a little bit dogmatic with their training sometimes and they start kind of buying into a system that probably doesn't have any, you know, supporting evidence anymore. Maybe I, I think that people need to really sit back and, and look at where the data is, where the information is. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that that means every time you go to do a new... That particular lift, but I I think that having an intention that's grounded in good information is is pretty important. So so like you said, you know, open your eyes to to other to other information that might be out there. Maybe your maybe your crunch regimen just isn't it. Maybe it's not what you think it is, and maybe it's not doing for you what you think it's doing.
0: Definitely, that's a great point and. While we're on the topic of exercises, um, I know we touched on this a little bit, but um, we'll maybe each go over like our top three core exercises. Um, I know mine have changed significantly in the past few months compared to what they were before. And again, like you said, this is just a concept of learning new things and adapting to that new knowledge. Sure. Um, so let's just go back and forth here. Uh, so yep. my first one, and this has become a staple in my training, is the hanging leg race. And I picked this up from uh, Pavel's book, Hard Style Abs, where he completely changed my concept of core training. Um, sure. So his main point in the book is so many people want to build muscle in their abs yet they sit by and do four sets of 30 reps or 50 reps or insanely high rep counts when he's like, yeah. when we want to build muscle and say our biceps, we typically use a higher load for less reps. So something mm-hmm. like a 40 pound dumbbell for curls at eight reps or something. Um, right. And he said for core, we're kind of limited in our ability to do that in some cases. Some exercises we can load, and it's great. Other exercises, kind of hard to load. But what we should do instead of increasing weight is increase the demand. So that's where the hanging leg raise came in is I had always done knee raises. So I thought, why not take it to the next level? And doing these in sets of three three or four sets, about four to eight reps, just doing them very slow and controlled, no kipping, none of that, holding constant tension throughout the quads, throughout the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, the abdomen, the glutes. I've been getting insane core results from this simple movement. Um, And it's kind of working in a little bit of a hollow body hold in it too because you're holding yourself at the bottom of the bar with that hollow hold position, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So I think I think that's a good point to be made is that, you know, why are we treating the abdominal area any differently than we treat other muscles? Now, I think that you also have to take that idea with a grain of salt. I mean, and this might be somewhat controversial, but I think you you have to think about how the muscles of the core want to be trained, so to speak, physiologically. So, you know, when you think about it, these aren't muscles that are necessarily – you know, producing big giant movements with long lever arms throughout the day, their muscles are contracting rhythmically, and they're contracting situationally, um, kind of in short bursts, and they're doing that over the course of the day constantly. So we're talking predominantly about highly oxidative, efficient fibers, um, type one fibers, probably that, you know, want to be trained for endurance rather than trained for power or strength or something like that. So um, like you said, I think it's it's a nice balance between um, testing the endurance of these muscles and also applying a load to the muscle that can be sustained over a period of time. So something like a reg- leg raise, like you said, requires kind of a, you know, a high endurance element and it also requires that strength element um, and also requires the ability to kind of um, hone in and and feel some of those deep muscles of the core that maybe aren't that familiar to you right off
0: the bat right exactly and speaking of deep core muscles i know that your favorite exercise tend to be ones that really dig in deep and hit those things that we talked about earlier that most people don't even think of yeah so yeah so um so two so two, of,
1: I, two of my top three, um, I actually, I can't necessarily claim as my own. Um, I certainly didn't create them. They're part of Stuart
0: McGill, who you mentioned earlier. Yep. They're part of his yeah. big three core exercises. So his
1: big three are the bird dog. Um, and let me think. There is a segmental sit-up that he does, like a modified sit-up. And what's the third one? I'm trying to think. Um bird dog, sit uh oh and the and the side plank. So two out of three, I've kind of just copied and pasted into my top three with the exception of one. Um but I think that um the side plank is super important, that frontal plane stability, so strengthening the lateral muscles of the core, um muscles that don't get a lot of love typically, and some muscles that aren't even thought to be part of the tor- the core typically. So um, muscles like the glute medius, um, which which has a significant influence on lateral stability and lateral core stability, um, is really taxed during something like a side plank. So, um, you know, that, that lateral hip stability can be very important. And it also plays into something we talked about earlier, the quadratus lumborum, um, which kind of stretches from that last rib down to the posterior and lateral pelvis. So, Um, strengthening those muscles in a very targeted fashion, I think is really important. Um, it also does hit some of those more, um, you know, well-known quote unquote core muscles like the internal and external obliques of the lateral core. So it really kind of hits from superficial to deep. Some of the muscles that don't typically get a lot of attention when training core, um, In addition to that, the the other Stuart McGill um, influence exercise is the bird dog and bird dog variation. So, you know, as a personal trainer, this is something I absolutely incorporate into every client's program, um, whether they're, you know, a seasoned athlete or someone that's in their 60s and 70s that um, doesn't have a lot of exercise experience. Um, the bird dog's great because it is like textbook core bracing with a, uh, movement of the upper and lower extremity. So it, it covers a lot of things It covers abdominal bracing and it covers coordination and it covers anti-rotation kind of all in one shot. And it really teaches you how to brace the core and produce movement at the upper and lower extremity while bracing the core. So it's a great exercise to employ. Um, and the third one, I guess, I'll, I'll, is it okay if I just keep rolling through to my last one? I don't want to...
0: Yeah, it keeps going. <laughs> I like it.
1: Yeah. yeah. So the third one, um, again, not an exercise I created, not part of Stuart McGill's list, but something that I really like that takes a lot of those concepts and makes them actionable is um, anti-rotation exercises, specifically with um, a band if you have one, a long band. So um, there is a million different variations of anti-rotation that you can do. Um, I usually start out with a simple pal-off press. So a pal-off press is when you take a band, usually about, um, you know, between hip and shoulder height, put that band on a stretch, and you're basically pressing from the chest to an extended position. Um, And so the band is trying to pull you in rotation, and you're resisting that rotation for at least a brief period of time. And you can progress that really easily. You can start increasing the length of the hold of the pal-off press, or you can take the pressing element out and just stay in a press and then walk laterally so that you're putting more tension on the band and then walking back to the origination or the origin point of the band um, to kind of take the tension off so you can you know, release and create tension that way. Um, so you can imagine you, there's so many ways that you can play with the plane of motion. There's so many ways you can mess with the... point of force application and the lever arms there's really a lot that you can do with anti-rotation and i've recently in my own training started incorporating it into a dead bug where you're laying on the back with the shoulders and hips flexed kind of in like a a reverse um, all fours position from your back um and playing with anti-rotation that way so kind of taking the same concept and then doing a dead bug with the, the anti-rotation happening with the band at my upper extremity. So, the legs are in, you know, working against any resistance, but the upper body is. So it kind of teaches you to brace the upper body while moving the lower body. And then you can mess with it the opposite way and have the band applied to the legs and you're moving the arms through the dead bug motion. So, you know, I could go on about, you know, different variations forever, but you kind of get the idea that there's a lot you can do with anti rotation. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of application to, to core stability with that.
0: Definitely. And, yeah. uh, You really got deep there and covered a lot, but um, the dead bug, that's one that I used to do a lot. And uh, my favorite variation was a Swiss ball between the hands and the knees. And when you're moving one, you're maximally contracting and bracing the other. So it's a forceful contraction, but it's those opposite sides paired and making them work together. Um, So definitely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a great yeah, like exercise a
1: there. Lot. I like that one a lot because it, it plays into the importance of isometrics too. Um, you know, isometric rotation. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but uh, I actually I pulled my own article. You know, before this conversation, a Stuart McGill article. It's a great one that I think anybody that wants to learn more about core exercise should look into. Um, And it's about the effect of long-term isometrics training on the core and torso stiffness. And basically, he compared um, novice train novice you know clients, personal training clients, to I think it was like Muay Thai kickboxers or something like that, which have great core stability, of course. um, And basically, found that in both groups, the isometric training was more effective in producing um, core and torso stiffness. So, you know, I think there's a huge application for isometrics like that in any training program. I definitely think that they should be utilized.
0: Definitely, and um, we have talked about loading a few minutes ago, and that makes me wonder too about the potential for core activation in a almost like a barbell hold. So not a full squat, but load a bar with four, five hundred pounds, or you know more than whatever your one rep max squat is, and just brace and hold. So you're not going to be dynamic or moving whatsoever, just holding, so to speak.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think loading. Um loading with a barbell lift is actually a really effective way to kind of balance those two concepts um, of loading the muscles um, and also kind of forcing them into an isometric. So, you know, if you take, you know, a squat, for example, and even just standing up with a barbell on your back, and you feel what your core does, you feel what your entire midsection does. You know that's bracing. You know if you didn't do that, you would collapse into a heap almost immediately, no matter how much weight you have on, whether it's you know 100 pounds or 500 pounds. You know you need to brace the abdomen um, and the core to To just maintain that position, to just have a barbell on your back. So, like you said, even coming down into an isometric the bottom end of a squat. Now you're really talking about loading those muscles on a really high level, um, and then maintaining that position, and also kind of loading some of the muscles that are, I don't know, what you call them, maybe like ancillary, maybe like ancillary core muscles, like the glutes that that have you know distal attachments, proximal attachments, um, you know, on on the spine, not on the spine necessarily, but on the pelvis, Um, kind of indirectly up onto this. But, you know, taxing those muscles as well, which kind of are supporting the core is a really good idea. And I think from an isometric standpoint, it could be really effective.
0: Right. And I mean, with all the exercises you've mentioned, you can incorporate so many different muscle movements and activations through them like you said side plank variations you could throw a mini band around the knees and do a isometric glute abduction hold with your hip kind of way up or you could extend it and get more glute max uh you could do the same with the bird dog you could do a mini band around the knees there's so many variations there for you to really make the most of your core training and train, like we said, multi-dimensional instead of just one thing at a time.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the 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 idea of progressive overload always applies. You know, I think that the more you do these exercises, the simple stuff like like a bird dog, you know, I don't and I don't even want to call the bird dog simple because if you're bracing correctly, the bird dog can be incredibly difficult for a long period of time if it's, you know, ten 5 to 10 reps for a 10 second hold that that should be really hard because you're you're really taxing those deep core muscles but um, I think you know making sure you're applying that concept of progressive overload if it starts getting too simple if you're starting to adapt find a way to make it more challenging don't just settle and make that the end of the story you know find a way to add some type of instability, add a different element to the exercise. So, like you said, adding a mini band um, to kind of engage some of the lateral hip muscles or the posterior hip muscles. Um, you could add a something like a DynaDisc, like a like an unstable surface underneath the elbow or underneath the feet to create some instability. So now you're working against not only that isometric, but you're also working against an uneven, unstable surface. So there's kind of another motor learning component to the exercise. So I think all of that's really important and kind of being creative with it. You know, not only, not only being creative yourself, but kind of going out there and looking for as much information as you can. Um, there's so many good resources out there with, with exercise ideas, just entire archives and libraries of different options. Um, and yeah, just just really making sure that you continue to test yourself when you find that things are getting a little bit too easy.
0: Right, definitely, definitely, so that was all great stuff, and all phenomenal exercises, and they're all things that you can pretty much do at home, for the most part, if you're still training at home, which is great. Um, Yeah, absolutely, sure. So, the only two exercises, well, couple exercises I'd consider adding are, and we've of hit on this already is just some kind of heavy loaded carry so loading the core with the bracing type of ac- action and then moving with it but as i said we've already hit on that mostly already and then as i said with the hanging leg raise having that hollow body hold position that's become one of my favorite things to modify as we go about a uh, workout or with training is throwing in rocking variations or single arm dumbbell press while in a hollow body hold to work the bracing and anti extension with anti rotation and now incorporating that upper body upper extremity type movement too. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think loaded you know carries are such a good way. And such a simple, well, I don't want to say simple because the exercises themselves are super challenging, but just like a really conceptually simple way to engage the core in kind of an alternative manner. You know, you don't really think about just walking with a weight as being taxing on the core, but man, it it really is. And you kind of touched on some of the variations there um, that make it even more challenging, kind of messing with different upper extremity movements while you're walking, adding weight, uh, and I would also argue that kind of switching up your lever arm situation can be pretty, you know, pretty beneficial too. bring that weight outside of your base of support. So now you're taxing balance on top of, you know, a standard core exercise, just adding another element. But again, right.
0: no, definitely. That's a great point is just constantly changing things up, like you said, being dynamic, but moving around so to speak so whether it's getting outside the base of support changing the lever arm so if you're doing say a weighted carry the difference between a single arm farmers walk to a waiter walk or bottoms up kettlebell walk or something along those lines each task is going to place new demands on your core so just little tweaks for big changes Um, yeah no doubt And I think that doing
1: all of that and then also not forgetting what the foundational movements are, with the foundational exercises. So it doesn't hurt just because, you know, you're you're doing a bottoms up farmer's carry unilaterally doesn't mean you can't go back to a bird dog and and, you know, just practice the basics because. Um, I think sometimes we can get stuck on that that path of progression and forget about the foundational movements that everything starts with
0: right exactly, and going back to foundational movements and little tweaks for those of you who are still set on you know you have to do sit ups have to do crunches that 's all you 've ever done there 's one variation that I found very effective and beneficial, and that's the Janda sit-up. So with this one, you're either going to use a band or someone else pulling your legs out away from you when you're in that sit-up position, and you're going to have to hold your legs in, and doing so is going to place an isometric demand on your hamstrings, because otherwise your legs are going to straighten on you and the hamstrings as we know extend the hip so that will inhibit the hip flexors like the psoas which tend to dominate the crunch and other abdominal uh, flexion type exercises so this way when you do sit-ups if you're still on that route all of the training is going right to the rectus abdominis and you're not tightening down your hip flexors more and more and more each time So, little tweak figures a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, And I I think something that people often do overlook is the fact that the hip flexors can, in some cases, play a massive role in crunching and sit up tight movements. I mean, you're producing a really strong hip flexion movement. Um, and I think that, you know, if you start to notice that you're experiencing chronically tight hip flexors or kind of some weird low back pain that you're not familiar with, and you are someone that's doing a ton of sagittal plane, you know, flexion-type movements, maybe you have to look at the stuff that you're doing excessively and kind of pairing that up with some of the weird, insidious pain that you're experiencing.
0: Right, exactly. So, well, I think we hammered exercises and training really well there, Um, just to kind of bring it home here. So everyone now knows different exercises, training, but as far as how you're going to put it in your workouts, um, I know most of the time we look at core training towards the end of a workout. We rarely do core first. And what's your take on the core training daily versus every other day versus once a week kind of approach?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I I think that it's, it's should be realized that core training is happening every time that you're doing, you know, an exercise exercise where you're moving through space when you're not using a machine or you're not using you know, whatever, you know, structured exercise equipment, when you're moving weight through space, you are essentially doing some form of core training. Now that doesn't speak to the specific core training that we've been talking a lot about. So I think that it makes sense to treat, you know, these muscles like you would treat other muscles of the body. You need to give them adequate rest, um, from a day-to-day perspective just like you would other muscle groups so i think that doing you know two to three days of you know structured core exercise as a part of your workout every week is probably a decent idea maybe even a less at the very beginning and then using you know the, the the motor learning that you're getting from that training and applying it to bigger movements like a squat or a deadlift um where you know you are taxing those muscles but maybe not in a traditional sense so um, kind of just using that core training that you're doing a couple of days out of the week, and then applying what you learn from it to um, other training that you're doing, where the core is kind of a you know an outside mechanism that's not directly being um, taxed during the exercise.
0: Right, definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and with that people often ask me, you know, sets or reps or when you're programming for a client, you always put that stuff in there because you don't want them to be left guessing. Um, yeah. But as far as that goes, I usually fall in the three to four set range. And if it's a rep exercise, usually eight to 12 rep range, or if it's a time exercise, usually somewhere between 30 seconds and a minute with a rest yeah. period that's relatively short, like 30 to 45 seconds to keep the intensity up with core work. Um, Do you usually do something similar or are you kind of different in that? I do, yeah. I think that I'm pretty similar
1: um, to your approach. Again, I think that we should be training these muscles for endurance. I think that's what a lot of the data and the research points to. Um, Again, these are muscles that are really good at firing all day rhythmically so we should probably be training them as such under a load um so i think training for endurance in you know slightly higher volumes but you know making it manageable i think three to four sets um in that you know like 10 to 20 rep range is probably reasonable depending on what you're doing though i mean maybe if you're doing we'll go back to the bird dog as an example again if you're doing some bird dog Maybe you want to incorporate isometric holds, which is kind of an element of endurance or kind of, uh, you know, hits on that metabolic endurance pathway. So I think that maybe you do five or six reps, but you're doing 10-second holds. So it's an endurance exercise, lower repetition. But when all is said and done, you're holding that position for, you know, cumulatively like a minute or two, which is a pretty long time. So...
0: Definitely. And you can even get dynamic with each repetition you do with an exercise. So if you are doing your bird dog, for example, if you do that first rep super slow, you know, 10, 20 seconds for one rep, follow that with a super fast one, as fast as you can while still maintaining good form. And then you can break that up into components. Move your arm through space really fast while you move your leg really slow or vice versa. Just start changing little things because again, in life, in athletics, you're not ever going to be doing the same thing and same task over and over again.
1: Yeah. So I think that if I had to make two suggestions on kind of just giving you, you know, a source of perspective and a source of information um, surrounding the core that are really beneficial and were really helpful to me to understanding kind of the biomechanics and the physiological implications of the core. I'd highly, highly recommend looking at all of Mary Masary's work. Um, and of course, like we've mentioned a couple of times, the work of Stuart McGill, who's just like a master of spinal biomechanics. I mean, he's literally like the godfather. So um highly recommend looking at the work of Stuart McGill and Mary Masary. They both do really awesome stuff and they kind of like... Or what influenced most of my my end of the conversation, so I would
0: definitely recommend that. Definitely, and if you're not the PubMed research type, I know Stuart McGill even has like books that you can pick up at like Amazon or online, and they're very easy reads. So if you're not the yep. research type, there's simple things out there. But yep. great episode today, awesome information, and I hope anyone listening to this really learned some things because I know I learned some things today. But Eric, as always, thank you for being here and for your time and for troubleshooting through all of the audio issues that we may or may not have experienced, depending on how good my editing was when we published this.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it.
0: Of course. And again, if you want to learn more about Eric or follow along with him, you can check out his Instagram at Eric Scott Kaplan. That's Eric with a K or you can find him on LinkedIn and the link for that is in the show notes over on the blog. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Stay tuned for another awesome episode next week where we're going to be going over the glutes, all about glute training. So it's almost like we've got Summer Body Week going on right now between the core this week and the glutes next week. But anyways, thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week.